because we are in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on his mission to restore the broken relationship between man and God. And this mission is documented in four books we find inside the Bible, and those four books are collectively referred to as the Gospels. And today we're gonna begin in chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew, the first of those four Gospels. As we pick up our study, the body of Jesus has been laid in a tomb that has been closed with a large and heavy stone weighing two and a half tons, sealed with an official Roman seal that carries the death penalty for anyone caught tampering with it and guarded not by two, not by three, but by dozens of Roman soldiers at the request of the Jewish religious leaders to assuage their concerns that the disciples of Jesus may try to steal his body and fake a resurrection. Those concerns were unnecessary because the disciples, except for John, are all in hiding. Bags packed, planning on splitting back up north to Galilee as soon as the Passover festivities are over. Convinced that Jesus had been defeated by death and they had been following a fraud for the past three years. Before we get into the main part of today's study, I know I've already used that phrase, but I'm going to use it again. I need to share a quick side note for you Bible students. It's worth taking some time this week in your own studies to revisit Luke chapter 16 and the study we did on Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus. I put the link to our website on your outline so that you can look that up this week. That Bible study is gonna go into much greater detail than I can in what I'm about to say for time purposes. The summarized version is this, and I'll tie this together in just a minute. There exists a dimension of death in the spiritual world, most commonly referred to as Hades or Sheol in the Hebrew. It is the place your spirit goes when you die. In Hades, there are two main areas and there's no way to get from one area to another. The two main areas are a place of torment for those who have rejected God and a pleasant, peaceful place for those who have placed their faith in God. The pleasant place was known as the bosom of Abraham, which simply means the chest of Abraham. Abraham was considered by the Jews and is considered by the Jews to be the father of their faith. So the term bosom of Abraham is meant to conjure up the image of a child leaning his head against the chest of his father and resting. It's to be a peaceful place, a place of great comfort and security. So why did those who placed their faith in God go to the bosom of Abraham in Hades and not heaven? Because Jesus had not yet died for their sins. So they could not yet ascend to heaven. Their sins hadn't been paid for. In Hades, those who rejected God await their final judgment. While those who placed their faith in God awaited a savior someone to pay for their sins so that they could ascend to heaven and be with the Lord. One of the things that Jesus did while he was in the grave for those three days was descend to Hades and announce to everyone in the bosom of Abraham that their sins had now been paid for and he led them up victoriously to heaven in new resurrected bodies leaving the bosom of Abraham empty. 
and it's been empty ever since. If we die now, we can go straight to heaven because Jesus has paid for our sins. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4, where he said, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So at some point during those three days, Jesus goes down to the bosom of Abraham and tells them all their sins have been paid for. And while I don't quite know exactly how the timeline works, I would guess that it's just before the resurrected Jesus appears on the earth that they all ascend to heaven because as we read last week, the word tells us that Jesus was the first to receive his resurrected body. So after he had his resurrected body, all of those waiting in the bosom of Abraham were able to receive their resurrected bodies, have their sins paid for, and ascend to heaven. I know that's a little tricky and I'm going really fast with some heavy topics, but go listen to the full study on Luke 16 this week. Apparently, Jesus picks some of these more recently deceased dead saints who were buried in Jerusalem to testify to the resurrection because, as we read last week, when Jesus was raised from the dead, a group of them come out of their graves too in their resurrected bodies and walk around Jerusalem saying, hey, just so you guys all know, Jesus really is alive. How do you know? Because I was dead yesterday and here I am alive. Just stopping by to let you know Jesus really is alive. Confusing stuff, strange stuff, but it's exactly what happened and I only mention it because it happens at this exact point in our timeline. So that's the little aside that I need to share up front. Now that I've got the weird stuff out of the way, which you've come to expect, to the main part of this week's study. And we're going to look at a series of events that's not weird, but it is controversial because it appears in all four of the Gospels and skeptics love to make the claim that these four Gospel accounts are rife with contradictions. Spoiler alert, right up front, there aren't any contradictions in the Bible and this series of events will prove to be no exception. As you may know, each of the Gospels is an eyewitness account and even though Luke was not there, Luke researched and wrote his Gospel based on the eyewitness accounts of people that he interviewed. It's a historical document. Each of the Gospels has a different theme and emphasis which causes the writer of that Gospel to highlight different things. That doesn't mean they make contradictory claims. It simply means they each shine a light on the same events and teachings from a sometimes slightly different angle. J. Warner Wallace, whose study we're doing on Wednesday nights right now, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, cold case homicide detectives in LAPD history. And he points out that when eyewitness accounts agree perfectly, it always means that the story has been fabricated and pre-planned and that the people are lying and they've colluded together around a story. Because what happens with real people is that they all see the same event from slightly different perspectives. Different details stick out to them, jump out to them, and even though they saw the same thing, there are slight differences in their accounts when people are testifying to the truth. And that's what's happening in the accounts that we're gonna read today in the Gospels. To give you a couple of examples that'll come up today, some of the 
Gospels will talk about there being two angels. Some of the Gospels will talk about there being one. It's only a contradiction if one of the accounts says there was only one angel because one can fit into two. It just may be that one of the Gospels highlights only the angel who spoke. That doesn't mean there weren't two there as well. If one Gospel talks about Peter and John running to the tomb while another talks only about Peter, they're not contradicting each other unless the one says only Peter ran to the grave. Otherwise, one gospel is simply choosing to highlight and focus on Peter because it lines up with what that writer wants to emphasize in his gospel. Now, with that being said, I'm going to be bouncing around the four gospels like crazy today. However crazy you think it's going to be, it's going to be crazier. Your fingers are going to be on fire if you're going to take on the challenge of flipping with me. This is going to be a serious challenge for those of you who think you can get your way around the Bible quickly. Because what we're going to do is we're going to put this order of events in sequence in a way that makes sense and blends together cohesively across all four of the Gospels to show that they do harmonize and work together. I'm gonna put all the verses we're gonna read today on the screens if it's too hard for you to flip. If you want to flip, something you don't have to do but you might wanna do is you might wanna bracket the verses that we read in your Bible and then write the next scripture reference that we jump to. That way in your own studies, if you ever come there, you can follow the thread in your own Bible Bible without even using the outline to read the events in order. That's just an idea if you'd like to do that. With that, let's jump in and we're going to begin in Matthew 28 verse 2, which tells us about an event that took place sometime on Saturday night or early Sunday morning. Matthew 28 verse 2 says, and behold, there was a great earthquake. This is another earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and I love this, and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. These Roman soldiers at the tomb of Jesus are paralyzed with fear and pass out from sheer awe when this angel shows up. When they come to, the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is sitting there empty, meaning they failed at their assignment and could be executed for dereliction of duty. So they all split. They all run for it. Contrary to the movies, the angel does not roll away the stone to let Jesus out. If Jesus had the power to rise from the dead, he doesn't need help getting out of the tomb. In fact, we'll find in our next study that in his resurrected body, Jesus can walk through walls and teleport anywhere he wants to. The angel showed up and rolled away the stone not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses So go ahead and make a note of that. The angel opened the tomb to let the witnesses in. And when you've done that, you can turn with me to the beginning of Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. In verse 1 we read this. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, that would be James the less, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. 
Luke's gospel tells us there were some other women in their group as well, but the most well-known are mentioned here. Their plan is to go to the tomb of Jesus and lovingly add more spices to his body to continue to mask the odor of death as they are expecting the body to be decaying. They didn't go the day before because it was the Sabbath and so they weren't allowed to walk the distance to the tomb. Verse two, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. When you put the gospel accounts together, you find that they set out just before sunrise and they reached the tomb just after sunrise. Verse three, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So as they're making their way there, they suddenly realize they don't have a group of men with them to move the two and a half ton stone to get in and put these spices onto the body of Jesus. And while these women saw Jesus' body placed in the tomb when he was buried, they're not aware that an official Roman seal has been added since that time by the Jewish religious leaders. So they go thinking they're gonna be able to get back in there and add more spices to the body. Verse four, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. So they get there and the tomb's sitting open and without going in, they can all see that Jesus' body is not lying on the stone slab where it had been placed by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus three days earlier. Now Mary Magdalene immediately leaves the rest of the woman and runs off on her own to tell Peter and John, and we'll pick that part of the story up in a minute. Now we're gonna read about what happened with the rest of the woman who had just arrived at the tomb only to find it empty. Mary Magdalene, just picture it in your mind, has taken off to go tell Peter and John. Turn with me to Luke 24, verse 3. Luke 24, verse 3. And this is what happens to the group of women who remain at the tomb. Luke 24, verse 3. It says, Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The woman entered the tomb, and sure enough, nobody's there. Did you get it? No body? No? Nothing? Okay. Anyway, verse 4. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Matthew explicitly tells us that these men were angels, and Mark tells us they were wearing long white robes. Verse 5. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is the angel speaking to the woman. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you looking for life among dead things? A question I'm sure the angels ponder on a regular basis while looking down at us. Why are you going to those places, to those people, to those things? Why are you looking for life among dead things? We're drawn to repeating that mistake over and over again. Looking in people who don't love the Lord, places that don't honor the Lord, things that don't bring us closer to the Lord. And the angels would say, why are you looking for life among dead things? Verse six, I have this underlined because I love it so much. He is not here, but is risen. And then I have the word remember underlined. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, 
the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. It's pretty comical that there are those who suggest the woman may have simply gone to the wrong tomb and that's why it was empty. There was an angel inside the tomb who told them Jesus is not here because he's risen from the dead. How do you know you had the right tomb? The angel told me. That's a pretty good reason right there. Verse 8, and I have this underlined too, and they remembered his words. They remembered his words. The light goes on and suddenly everything falls into place. They remember what Jesus had said earlier in his ministry. They remember and they believe. He's risen from the dead. Mark tells us that at this point, one of the angels said to the woman, but go tell his disciples and Peter, ouch, that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him as he said to you. Now, depending on your view, Peter is either singled out to make sure that everyone knew that the Lord still considered him a disciple or because after denying Jesus three times, he was not considered a disciple. You'll have to come to your own conclusion on that. But I also hear a great little dig at the other disciples in the phrase, there you will see him up in Galilee as he said to you. You guys remember how Jesus said he would rise from three days, right? You guys are all expecting that? Yeah, he'll see you in Galilee, just like he told you he would. The disciples will actually see Jesus in Jerusalem before they see him in Galilee, but it's in Galilee where Jesus will be seen the most following his resurrection by over 500 people at once, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Verse 9, then they returned from the tomb. Matthew says they left with fear and great joy. Mark says they trembled and were amazed. So the group of women, minus Mary Magdalene, set off from the tomb to tell the other disciples what the angel has just told them. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's going to see you guys in Galilee. Now we're going to pick things up with Mary Magdalene who ran to tell Peter and John that the tomb is empty. Turn with me to John chapter 20 verse 2. John chapter 20 verse 2. And we read this. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is the other disciple whom Jesus loved? It's John, writing about himself. And you know what? I gotta tell you, I get it, I get it. He doesn't call himself the disciple who loved Jesus because if you know Jesus, how, how could you not love him? There's nothing amazing about that. What's amazing is that Jesus knows me and still loves me. That's the amazing part, that he loves us. And John couldn't get over that fact either, so he took every chance he could to reflect on the incredible truth that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, because it was amazing, and it is amazing. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She's saying somebody's stolen the body of Jesus. She's devastated because she thinks the enemies of Jesus have taken his body and done something wicked with it, like destroyed it or burned it or torn it to shreds so that it can never be found again. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, 
Most important verse in the Bible, clearly. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. This is the greatest bit of literary trolling in history for a couple of reasons. Number one, John's gospel was written last. Somewhere between 80 and 90 AD, probably after he received his book of Revelation, he knows Peter's already written his gospel. It's assumed to be dictated as the gospel of Mark. Peter's already written his. It's in print. It's being distributed among the church. John knows. I put this detail in there. Peter's not even going to be able to come back because his, his gospel's already been sealed. Peter's probably dead by this point, and uh, there's nothing he can really do about it. So he makes sure that for millennia after this event, every Christian knows that he ran faster than Peter did and got to the tomb first. Well played, brother John, well played. Verse five, and he, stooping down and looking in, so John looks down, stoops, sees what he can, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he came out of his grave still wrapped in linen strips. You remember that? And Jesus has to say to the disciples, take them off him. Why? Because Lazarus was resurrected in his earthly body. Jesus was the first to be resurrected in an eternal body. So he's able to simply pass through these linen strips. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head. Not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. Now think about this, if someone or somebody had stolen the body of Jesus, they would not have unwrapped it inside the tomb. It would have been easier, far less messy, far less stinky to keep the body wrapped while transporting it. Clearly, this was not a hurried event that took place inside the tomb. Coincidentally, I think this may also give us the answer to that great theological question, will the clothes of those taken in the rapture simply fall into a heap or be left neatly folded? When Jesus, our example, received his resurrected body, the word tells us here that his head wrapping lay there, quote, folded. He's a God of order. And I believe that is the condition our clothes will be left in on the earth when the rapture takes place. Verse 8, then the other disciple, that's John, who came to the tomb first, just in case you forgot, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. John believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but he will be the only disciple who believes before Jesus begins appearing to them. And even though John believes, he hasn't yet made the connection between all the Old Testament prophecies and the words that Jesus had told them regarding his resurrection. He believes Jesus has risen from the dead, but he hasn't connected the dots and put it all together. Nobody's really done that yet. And while he didn't believe, Luke tells us that Peter marveled to himself at what had happened. He was perplexed. He knew something was going on, and he's trying to figure out what it is. Verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. John and Peter go back to the homes that they're staying at for the feast of Passover in Jerusalem, probably family or friends. Now, Mary Magdalene 
is emotionally disturbed because the body of Jesus is missing. And so after telling Peter and John, who take off running, Mary Magdalene, who had run to tell them, is probably tired out of breath, begins to make her way back to the tomb again, probably walking because she's tired from running there the first time. She's going back to the tomb because she's still devastated and disturbed that the body of Jesus is missing. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw, now underline the rest of verse 12, two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Bible students, there is incredible meaning behind this scene. This is worth the price of admission right here, what we're gonna talk about. Mary goes into the tomb and she sees two angels dressed in white, both sitting on this stone slab, this rectangular slab, where the body of Jesus had laid for three days. One is at the head, one is at the foot. Quote, where the body of Jesus had lain. This is all about the fulfillment of what was known as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in the Hebrew. The day when sacrifice would be made for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. Make a note of this and then we'll unpack it. The scene Mary walks into mirrors the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, and it's talked about in the whole chapter of Leviticus 16, and you can read that on your own if you'd like to do that this week in your studies. The scene Mary walks into mirrors the Day of Atonement. According to Leviticus 16, this was the one day per year when the high priest would wear white linen clothes instead of his usual fancy adorned high priestly outfit. Jesus, our great high priest, was wrapped in linen when he was laid on that stone slab in the tomb. After the sacrifice had been made on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sin offering and sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat. Now what is the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the lid of the box known as the Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The two stone tablets upon which are inscribed the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And the Lord didn't say even back then that he would meet the high priest in the box where the law is. He said, no, I'll meet with you at the mercy seat. My presence will come and hover over the mercy seat where the law is covered by my mercy. And on either side of the mercy seat, on either end of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there is a statue of what? An angel. An angel. Are you seeing the picture that Mary has walked into in the tomb? That stone slab where the body of Jesus lay when he was dead was the real Mercy seat, the greater mercy seat where our sins were paid for and covered by the blood of our sin offering, Jesus Christ, who bled by the way from seven places. His brow, his back, his side, his two hands, and his two feet. We mentioned last week that they would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest just in case he was found to be too sinful by God while going into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies and God chose to strike him dead. That way if he was struck dead, they could pull the body out 
without anybody else going in and dying. Jewish tradition actually says that happened on seven occasions. And unsurprisingly, when it did, nobody else would go in that year and try again. So how would they know if the sin offering on the Day of Atonement was acceptable to God that year? How would they know? If the high priest came out alive, they would know that the offering had been accepted by God. Jesus made himself both our high priest and our sin offering. And he went into the real holy of holies in the spiritual realm and became the sacrifice for all sins by all humanity, past, present, and future. Now, how would we know if Jesus, our great high priest, had made a sacrifice for sin that was acceptable to the Father? How would we know? If he came out alive. If he came out alive. And he did. Praise God, he did. And he declared as the high priest would on the day of atonement after coming out, your sins are forgiven. The apostle Paul declares this in Romans 4 where he writes of Jesus our Lord, I put it on your outline, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, it would have meant that his sacrifice, him offering his life on the cross, was not acceptable to God and not good enough to pay for our sins. But Jesus coming out alive is the authentication that his offering had paid for our sins successfully. And so it doesn't matter what you've done, through Jesus, you're forgiven, and I am too. So make a note of this, the resurrection proved that the sacrifice Jesus offered was accepted by God and we are forgiven. The resurrection proved that the sacrifice Jesus offered was accepted by God and we are forgiven. Continuing on in verse 13, then they, the two angels, said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, underline that, my Lord, not the Lord, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Isn't it interesting when you read this that, that she walks in and sees angels, and she doesn't pull out her phone and take a selfie. She doesn't even go, wow, angels. All she's concerned with is, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? See, Mary was a Jesus person. And when you're a Jesus person, you don't get caught up in all these supernatural trends, all this supernatural hype. You just want Jesus. Verse 14, you know, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And why doesn't she recognize Jesus? Well, number one, she was not expecting to see him. That, that's one thing. Perhaps her eyes were blurred from tears. Jesus in his resurrected body would have looked radically different to the last time she had seen him where he was unrecognizable. His face being beaten so badly that no one could even tell who he was anymore. 
Or she may have simply been supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus until the exact moment of his choosing. We don't know. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, she thought he was the cemetery groundskeeper, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Don't you love that? This little woman, probably not even weighing 100 pounds, says, just tell me where you've put the body of Jesus. I'll get him, I'll, I'll take him away myself. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. When Jesus calls your name, you know it's him. Nobody calls your name like Jesus. As Jesus himself had said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And Mary's response, I can't even think about that without getting choked up. And Mary's response is that she practically tackles Jesus. Verse 17, and Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. She, she is clinging on to him as though he might disappear again any second. She doesn't want to lose him again. And so Jesus lovingly tells her, I'm, I'm going to be around a little bit longer. I haven't yet returned to my father in heaven. We're going to have a few days together. And so that we, like Mary Magdalene, would not feel abandoned when Jesus returned to heaven. Forty days later, Jesus would send his spirit to never leave and to be with every believer all the time. She called him Rabboni, which means that she was still relating to him as the teacher from Nazareth, who she loved dearly. But Jesus was also saying, don't cling to me as that man, Mary. I'm not him anymore. I'm... I'm your Lord, I'm your Savior, I'm your God. Things have changed for the better. And Jesus would then also explain to Mary that she couldn't cling to him because she had work to do. She needed to be the first missionary, the very first missionary, and take the good news of the resurrection to the disciples. He told her, but go to my brethren, underline my brethren, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. You see, up to this point, Jesus has called the disciples servants. He's even called them friends, but he's never called them brethren before, which means brothers. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, the disciples and you and I have been adopted into the family of God, and Jesus is now our brother. He's our brother, and I love that. Jesus says, tell them I am ascending to my father and your father. We have the same Father, Father in heaven. In Romans 8.29, the Apostle Paul tells us the Father has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. The idea is that Jesus, being raised from the dead, would be the first to be raised from the dead of many, the first of many, incredible. And again, I'm struck by the, the grace of Jesus, because I would have said, Go and tell those faithless, unbelieving morons that I'm alive exactly like I said I would if they ever listened to anything I said. But Jesus just says, go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. 
This resurrection day that we're reading about was also the annual feast, the annual celebration of first fruits on the Hebrew calendar. The first tithe, the first tenth of the harvest would be presented to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem and the priests would wave these sheaves, the first ripe sheaves of barley. They would wave them in the air before the people and say something along the lines of, Lord, we thank you for providing us with this harvest. The first of it belongs to you and we thank you that we can anticipate much more to come in this harvest. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 when he writes, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus dies on Passover, fulfilling Passover as our Passover lamb. Then he's raised on the feast of first fruits, fulfilling that feast as the first fruits of those who rise from the dead, the firstborn among many brethren. Are you tracking with me here? Now turn with me to Matthew 28, verse 9. Matthew 28, verse 9. And we now jump to the group of women, minus Mary Magdalene, who are on their way to tell the rest of the disciples what the angel has told them. So remember, they met with the angels in the tomb and the angel said, go tell the other disciples Jesus is alive and he's gonna meet them in Galilee. So they get there and see these other disciples. Matthew 28, verse nine. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. Now, now I love this because it says then after that, so they came and held him by his feet and worshiped him. That word so means because Jesus said rejoice, they responded and did that. Which means, I don't know exactly how it played out, but literally what happens is like Jesus shows up right in front of them and I think everyone just like freezes. And then Jesus is like, rejoice. And they're like, ah! And then they go and they grab him and they hold him. But I love that. There's this great moment where like nobody knows seemingly what to do until Jesus says, rejoice, it's appropriate. And they're like, nuts and grab him by the feet and worship him and then Jesus said to them verse 10 do not be afraid go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me and now we'll flip again to Luke 24 and we're going to pick up halfway through verse 9 where we left off Luke 24 halfway through verse 9 that same group of women now reach the other disciples and pass on the message that the angel had told them. And Jesus had told them now as well, to tell them that he's risen from the dead and he's gonna meet them in Galilee. It says, and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary the mother of James the less, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. That literally means like nonsense and they did not believe them. Peter and John ran to the tomb when Mary Magdalene told them it was empty, but they likely only did that because Mary had told them she was worried someone had stolen the body of Jesus. They didn't go, Jesus is alive, he's alive. They went because they were worried the body was missing. The rest of the disciples get word from the other woman who passed along the message from the angel at the tomb and Jesus after meeting them on the road, and they don't believe it. They think these women are talking total nonsense. They don't even bother to go and check it out for themselves. They don't rush back up to Galilee to go and meet Jesus. They don't believe them at all. The tomb was empty, and yet John was the only disciple who actually believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
After the other woman, Mary Magdalene would have eventually shown up. And in John 20, 18, I'll read it to you. We read this. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. How did the disciples respond when Mary Magdalene told this to them? Mark's gospel tells us, and when they heard he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. They did not believe. Now, why were women used to be the first witnesses to the resurrection? Bible commentators have observed that we've used technology to improve communication across the centuries. First through the telegraph, then through the telephone. But to this day, the very best and most effective means of communication, the best way to spread a message quickly has always been tell a woman. You tell a woman and the news gets out faster than you believed was possible. For real though, why were women used to be the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? Why did they get to be the ones to tell the disciples? Why did Mary Magdalene get to be the first one to see Jesus alive? Pastors love, we love to highlight the fact that Jesus empowered women, and he did. But I personally do not think that Jesus had a specific pro-woman agenda, and that's why this happened. I really believe the biggest reason they were used is because they were there. They were there. They were at the cross when Jesus was crucified. They were at the tomb when he was buried. Three days later, they're at the tomb again. Mary was in the garden, concerned about the body of the Lord. None of the disciples were, but the women were there. And if you and I will choose to put ourselves in situations where the Lord is, he'll use us. The lesson there isn't about men and women. The lesson there is that even though women were not legally accepted as witnesses in society at that time, Jesus didn't care. God doesn't care how unqualified you might be. If you'll show up in a place where he can use you and be willing to be used by him, he will use you. He doesn't care what society says about you. He doesn't care if people think you're unqualified. He'll use you if you'll show up. And these women showed up. And so the Lord used them in an incredible way. If we'll enter into that conversation with that person, if we'll ask that question in love about how they're really doing, if we'll dare to pray with them, pray for them, God will use us simply because we're there, simply because we're choosing to be around Jesus because we choose to be around his body, the church. One of the themes that comes up in this part of the resurrection narrative is the words of Jesus, both spoken but also in scripture, that clearly prophesied he would rise from the dead. Do you remember one of the angels said to the woman, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And then we're told, and they remembered his words. And when John tells us that the other disciples did not believe Jesus had risen from the dead, he writes, for as yet they did not know the scripture 
that he must rise again from the dead. I'm struck by the truth that there are different kinds of remembering and different kinds of knowing. The woman did remember the words of Jesus. They hadn't just forgotten them like, didn't he say something about rising from the dead? Oh, I can't remember. That's not what this is talking about. The disciples did know the scriptures that talked about the Messiah rising from the dead. They had been taught them from the time they were children. They had them memorized. When it says they didn't know them, it doesn't mean they didn't know them. It means they didn't believe them. They didn't believe them. You see, they believed in God, but they didn't believe God. Those scriptures weren't in them in such a way that they were looking for them to be fulfilled. Those scriptures weren't in them in such a way that they were expecting these things to come to pass. And my question for you and I today is, do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe in faith what his word says? Or or do you just know intellectually what his word says? Do you remember what his word says academically or do you remember it in such a way that you are expecting it to come true in your life? There's a difference. You might believe in God, but I'm asking if you believe God. Are you shocked when he keeps his promises? Or do you just expect that he's gonna keep his promises? He kept his promise to rise from the dead. I'm pretty sure he can keep his other promises as well. He's able and he's faithful. Put your faith in him now. Start praising and thanking him for his future faithfulness now. Start remembering his word now. Start knowing his word now. He deserves your faith. He deserves your trust. He deserves your confidence and he deserves to be remembered rightly by us. And then if you want to know what the big takeaway is from today's message, it's simple. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Your great high priest, Jesus Christ, has made the sacrifice for your sins and it has been accepted by the Father. More than anything else we do as we come together today, as the brethren of Jesus, we come together to simply thank him for doing that for us. Take communion today. Thank Jesus that you're forgiven and spend some time just thanking him for that truth, that you're forgiven. You're forgiven. With that, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and let me pray for us together. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that his sacrifice was acceptable and pleasing to you. And that you received it as adequate payment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But thank you that our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, was not left lying on the mercy seat, dead. But that as our high priest as well, he emerged from the holy of holies, alive, alive. And now lives forever to make intercession, to pray for us. 
Jesus, thank you for your victory. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that your spirit is here with us and among us. Thank you that we are forgiven. And we pray that as we take some time this evening, just to remember what you've done for us, just to thank you for your sacrifice, just to thank you that we are forgiven. We pray that you would be blessed, that you would be honored, and that you would find in us deep gratitude. And Lord, as we go out and live our lives this week, may we live lives that show we believe you. We don't just believe in you, we believe you. We are not surprised when we realize that you were working for our good in a situation. We will not be surprised when all of our needs are met. We will not be surprised when we find that we have peace in very difficult and tumultuous situations. We will not be surprised when we have joy in difficulty. We expect it because we remember your word, Lord. And we remember who you are and that you are always faithful. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.